recently read an account of a pastor in Kentucky who had met a Christian father who was concerned because his daughter was engaged and about to be married to a guy who was an atheist, an outspoken atheist. And the future father-in-law, the gentleman, asked the pastor if he would go and meet with this young man and talk to him because he had tried to raise his daughter Christian, and here she was marrying this guy. And so the pastor went and he met with uh, the young man, and after several hours just talking the young man through the scriptures, presenting Christ to him, explaining salvation, the young man put his faith in Jesus Christ. Pretty awesome, amazing thing. Well, a year passed, and the couple was married, and the father-in-law had kind of changed his perspective on this whole deal. In fact, the son-in-law then set up an appointment with the pastor. And he came to the pastor and he told the pastor, he said, my father-in-law has asked me to throttle back my faith that I have. He said that his father-in-law felt like he was taking God's word too seriously, that he was um, even sacrificing hours he could be at work for continuing his uh, career, focusing on his career by going to church rather than working on Sundays, and he was giving his father-in-law felt too much money to the church as well. And the father-in-law had told him, I'm really glad you became a Christian, but Jesus never wanted you to become a fanatic. You know, there's a lot of people that are like that, that you can have just some small doses of Jesus. It's good to go to church. It's good to be moral and ethical, but don't take Jesus too seriously. Don't get too excited about your faith. And it's pretty interesting today in the passage that we'll look at in Mark that Jesus was also cautioned and worried from his very own family that he was becoming too fanatical, that he was becoming too serious about his ministry, what he was doing, what God had called him to do on earth. And we've been studying the book of Mark, and today we're going to be in in Mark chapter um, 3, verse 20 through 30. But before we do, I want to go back and look at a verse that we looked at last week in our message. And this was a verse from 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. The Apostle John writes, By this we may know that we are in him, in Jesus. Whoever says they abide, or they're in Jesus, they're a Christian, ought to walk the same way in which he, or Jesus, walked. And you see, the truth is, Jesus, we're going to see today, was called a fanatic. Jesus was told to throttle it back by his very own family. But Jesus tells us we're to live the same way that he lived. And so don't you think it's true that if Jesus was living too fanatical, that chances are his believers, his followers, would be accused of the same thing? So here's the thing. As we go into Mark and we look into Mark, I want to ask you this morning this question. Is your faith just a comfortable faith? Or is it really a Jesus-following faith? Do you truly, truly desire to follow Jesus, to, to, to live like Jesus? To walk is the word used in that scripture, which means to live, to live like Jesus. So we've been studying the book of Mark here at Grace, verse by verse. And today we're in chapter um, 3, verse 20 through 30. If you want to flip there, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at this scripture. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this Resurrection Sunday that we can celebrate the fact that you are alive. God, I thank you for this body of believers, this church, and the 
other congregations today, not only meeting here in Bainbridge, but just around the world to celebrate the same truth. And we live in a world that truly doesn't like you. It doesn't like the fact that people follow after you. And God, I pray that today that we will see through the scripture that you've called us to be all in, that we can't just be on the fence, but your word demands and your truth demands and your your message demands that we are all in. And God, I pray that you'll teach us how to do that better today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we're walking through the gospel of Mark. If you're newer or guest here today and maybe you're not familiar with how the Bible is laid out, uh, the Bible right at the beginning of the New Testament has four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are differing accounts of the same story, which is the, the story of Jesus. And so they're from different angles, from different people, intended for different audiences. But what's beautiful about the Gospels is that you can look at all four and get a kind of different perspectives. All the truth always corresponds together. It's all completely accurate, and they all are in sync, but you get different angles on it. In fact, a few weeks ago, I gave away a Bible that actually laid out the accounts of the Gospel all together in text. So everything that was, say, missing in Mark was put in there from John, and so you could actually see the whole picture together. It's, it's a great, great tool if you want to pick that up. But we're looking at Mark, the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, and we're watching Jesus, we're learning from Jesus. We're not doing this as a history lesson to see intellectually what Jesus was all about or what he did, what he was on earth. We study Jesus because he's more than just a man. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And so we're seeing in the Gospels up to this point, we're seeing Jesus do some amazing things, some supernatural things, but we're also seeing Jesus begin to give hints of his true destination, his true purpose, his true mission on earth, which was to make his way to Jerusalem and to the cross. And so today, as we pick up in verse 20, we're not quite there yet. He's not making his trip there. In fact, he's returning kind of to his home base, which is a place called Capernaum. And so verse 20, it says, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they, he and his disciples, could not even eat. So he and his disciples return home base to their place, probably Peter's house possibly, and the crowds are pressing in so great on him that he could eat, not even get something to eat. It's amazing. And one thing to, to just remember as we look through these accounts, these are historical accounts. Sometimes I think we're guilty of spiritualizing the Bible, separating, compartmentalizing it out, like this is real world that I get up and go to my job and do my stuff and have my family and this is more, I believe it, but it's kind of like spiritual things. And these are like in, these things that are just supernatural that maybe happened, maybe didn't happen. I kind of believe they happened, but I kind of put them in a box as something that's not really real life historical like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and the Battle of Gettysburg or whatever. We, we separate these things out, but these are actual historical accounts. And so we looked at this last week as well. You have this crowd of people, this huge crowd, thousands even, that are following after Jesus, and they want to see Jesus, and they want to observe his mission and what he's about and what he's doing, and who is this guy? And even today, the most hardened atheists and skeptics will agree with the fact that more than likely this guy named Jesus existed, although they would disagree on many of the things that we hold true. They would have to say, look, we understand Jesus historically, in some way, some shape, had to exist. 
And in fact, a few weeks ago, I was on a Jewish website. It's called myjewishlearning.com. I just was cross-referencing some things. And for those maybe who aren't familiar, super familiar with religion, uh, the Ju- Judaism, the Jewish people, they reject Jesus as the Messiah. They don't believe in Jesus. They believe in Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, but they reject Jesus as being the Messiah. And so as I was on their website just looking and cross-referencing, I came across a short little video that Jewish people who reject Jesus as the Messiah, as God, they put together. And so I just want you to watch this because it really says a lot of what I'm saying here today. interesting. They're trying to figure out what box do we put Jesus in, this historical figure who really lived? Where does Jesus fit? And as you can see, and we'll talk throughout this message, that they put Jesus all over the place. That's the same situation that was going on in Israel during the first century when Jesus actually walked on this earth, that the crowds, these people following Jesus, were trying to determine, who is this guy? What is he about? And all these people were following him, but we're going to see as we go through this book of Mark uh, throughout the next months, that these crowds that follow were very fickle. In fact, these people who at one point claimed to be disciples, claimed to be Jesus followers, by the time he gets to the cross, they've all abandoned him. Why did they abandon him? Because they could not conceive in their minds of a Messiah who would come and die for their sins. They, that was not in any way, shape, or form in the way that they saw scriptures. Unfortunately, they did not read scriptures with an open mind. They weren't taught scripture with an open mind by the people, the, the religious leaders of the day, because we've seen this. The religious leaders of the day were only out for their own agendas, so they couldn't read scripture, the Old Testament scriptures, and see Jesus, the suffering Messiah, as Isaiah 53 talks about, who's going to come and die for our sins. They could not see that. They had, in their mind, a conquering king, someone who would run out the Romans, one who would bring back the prestige of the country of Israel. But at this point, the crowds are still figuring it out, and Jesus' popularity is actually peaking. People are just coming from all over the place to follow him and see him to the point where he can't even sit down and have a meal with his disciples because of these people. So he had great support from the average person. The crowds loved what he was doing. He was doing these supernatural things, these miracles, these things that they couldn't even fathom. And I know it's easy to look at the Bible and see all the supernatural things in the Bible and think, well, you know, that stuff's so commonplace in the scriptures, but I don't see that today. What, what, you know, why not? The, the thing is, you've got to remember the Bible was written over a 4,000, 5,000-year period of time of history. And truthfully, the miracles and the supernatural things you see in the Bible were not everyday occurrences even during those times. They were very much a rare occurrence. And so certain times in the Old Testament, different prophets, God would give the ability to do certain supernatural things. But no one had ever seen anything like what Jesus had done and was doing. What Jesus was doing as he was here was unexplainable miracles. Unexplainable miracles. Do do supernatural things, do miracles take place today? Absolutely. God answers prayer. This last week, 
amazing answer to prayer from somebody right here within our church community. But it's different than the miracles that were happening during Jesus' time. See, a true miracle is something that can't be explained by any natural cause whatsoever. No natural cause can explain it. And that's what's so unique about the miracles and, and supernatural things that Jesus was doing, that it was unexplainable. There's no way that you can say, yes, God healed them, but he used a doctor to do it. Or Jesus did this, but this can be explained this way. There's shows on TV, you may have seen them on the History Channel, where they try to explain away Jesus' miracles. Well, you can't explain them away. Can God do amazing things? Absolutely. Can, do we put God in a box and say he can't do these things today? No, we don't. God can do whatever he wants. But as we see and as we understand and, and look around, we see that Jesus' miracles were on a far different level than anything that we can observe and see today. And so God was authenticating Jesus. He was showing Jesus to be something unique and something different, something the world had never seen. In fact, we forget this if, as Christians if you've grown up in church all of history, all of history has been moving to this spot, the cross, the grave. All of history has been moving. It was God's plan, Scripture says, before the foundation of the, the world that Jesus would be crucified. This was something that was happening here was, was amazing, that Jesus walked the earth. God himself came in the form of Jesus Christ. That's what history is all about. And unfortunately, until our recent day and age, that everybody understood because history was divided before Christ in the year of our Lord. So everyone accepted the fact that something incredible happened. Jesus changed everything. And so Jesus was here and he was doing these things. He was authenticating himself. He was ushering in his new covenant. He was offering salvation he was leading to the cross and where he would die for the sins of the world. He was declaring that God's kingdom had arrived. And God himself was speaking to humanity through the person and face of his son. Look what happens in verse 21. Even his own family. They're not sure about this. Verse 21. And when his family heard it, heard all this stuff that was going on, they went out to seize him. For they were saying... He is out of his mind. Jesus is out of his mind, right? I mean, okay, so you, you need to remember the history about Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. We know that, right? Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. He had a stepfather, Joseph. Okay, Mary and Joseph were married. Jesus was his, his stepson. But Jesus had other biological stepbrothers, half-brothers and sisters. Maybe you didn't know that. Scripture refers to it in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, uh, when it's asked when he's back in his hometown of Nazareth, is this not the, the, the carpenter, Jesus, this carpenter guy, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And so the people in his hometown, they knew Jesus. He was that guy that grew up over there, and he was a carpenter as he got older, and even his own siblings questioned who he was and what he was claiming to be. And Jesus did not, according to what we can tell from Scripture, Jesus did not do, start doing miracles until he was about 30 years old. And so during the time that he was growing up, Scripture tells us that he was perfect. He lived according to God's law. He never sinned, and, but he did not do any miracles or supernatural things during that time, except for never sinning, which is pretty supernatural. 
But up until this point, you can understand how if you have brothers and sisters, uh, you know, you can understand how that you might be skeptical, even if they're a good kid, right? Okay. The fact that this guy, you get rumors, Jesus has kind of left and left the home area and he's went off and he's doing all these things. You're getting feedback. You're hearing things. The rumor mill spinning about Jesus and you're hearing about the, that Jesus is making these incredible claims. He's saying these, these just things that seem to blow your mind that he can forgive sins. And so can you imagine the family at this point? They're like, yeah, I mean, Jesus was a good kid and all, but, you know, he's kind of getting a little bit crazy there claiming to be God. You know, that's really a, a little weird. And so his family, his brothers and sisters, they, like, do an intervention here. They literally go in and try to seize him. They tried to seize him. That word seize means to arrest. So, like, forcibly take him back home. They're like, let's take this guy, let's shut the door and lock it at home and give him some medication to help him because he's, he's just delusional. He's mad. And, and so that's kind of the scene here, that the brothers, they, they love Jesus. I mean, obviously, if they did not love and care about him, they wouldn't go try to protect him. They were, you know, if they didn't love him, they would say, go do it. We just... Wipe our hands of you, clean of you. But they go and they try to forcefully take him back, but they think he's crazy. They think he's a lunatic. They think he's out of his mind. And so that's the scene here. And the same is true um, for all of us who face the reality of the historical Jesus. Was he crazy in the things that he was saying? Was he mad? Was this a guy who just walked first century on the earth? And he made these supernatural claims, but really, truthfully, no, that's true. He was just out of his mind. He's a lunatic. But the problem was, and the religious leaders of the day were struggling with the fact that how could they explain away these incredible miracles that Jesus was doing, these supernatural things that Jesus was doing? So in this passage today, in our text today, the religious leaders, they kind of have an angle. Here's what they're going to do. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of the demons, he cast out the demons. So you see their angle? Their angle was, hey, he's doing these things, but let's explain it to the people this way. Satan is giving him the power to do that. The devil is giving him the power to do that. And these scribes, these were the religious authorities of the day. I mean, during that time period, what the scribes said, that went. I mean, that was word from God. And so these scribes were the professional theologians. These were the guys who studied the law, studied the Old Testament. It was their occupation. But their problem with Jesus was that Jesus would not submit to their authority and their interpretations of the law. Jesus said, look, this is not from God, the way that you're adding to and making these things up. Jesus kept the law perfectly, as we talked several weeks ago, but he did not keep the way the scribes said that he should keep the law. And so the fact that in, back in chapter 2, when Jesus said that he could forgive sins, that he forgave a man's sin, that was blasphemy. All right, plain and simple, the scribes, I mean, the people, the religious leaders of the day would have been taken back by a human being who claimed that he could forgive sins. And so once he said that, they were looking for opportunities to trap Jesus, to kill Jesus, to silence this guy. Because the crowds were following him. His popularity was soaring. This guy cannot be legit. So how's he doing this? How's he doing all these supernatural things? Satan. Satan's making him do it. Satan's giving him the power to do it. The devil is doing it. But look how Jesus responds to them in verse 23. Very logically. He, and he called them to him and said to them in parables. 
how can Satan cast out Satan? He's, he's referring to the fact that he cast out demons. We saw that a few weeks ago. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house is not able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it is coming to an end. So Jesus gives two parables. The first one is very straightforward, very simple. And it's the fact that the prince of demons to be casting out his own demons. How does that make sense? Do you say I'm the prince of the devils? I'm the prince of demons? Why would I be turning around and throwing out my own demons? So the demons were there doing Satan's work. So if Jesus was casting out demons, he sure couldn't be working for Satan. And so that was the point with that first parable. And a parable is just an analogy with a spiritual point. And then the second one, he says, in verse 27, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. What's that mean? It sounds a little cryptic, what Jesus is saying in that parable. Very simply, the point now is that Jesus is casting out of demons. It cannot be explained by the power of Satan then it reflects an authority that is greater than Satan's. So if he's not throwing them out by Satan's power, then he's got an authority that is greater than Satan. So Jesus is the one who's binding the strong man, Satan, and plundering his house. So Jesus came with the authority of God to defeat and destroy the works of Satan and to rescue the valuable things, people, from his house. And so Jesus shows the absurdity of their claims. So is it, the family says, Jesus, you're a lunatic, you're mad, you're crazy, you've lost it, you've lost touch with reality. The scribes, the religious leaders say, he's a liar, he claims he's speaking for God, and in actuality, he's empowered by the devil, the Satan's given him the ability to do this. But Jesus doesn't quit here, because these are some serious accusations that these scribes are making to Jesus. Look at verse 28 through 30. Jesus told them, he said, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Well, right there, what we have is what is referred to by people as the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. And throughout history, there's been great debate on what is this. And in fact, in my pastoral ministry, and maybe some of you have been in church leadership for years, you may have been approached by people who were very distraught. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have, have I committed something that cannot be forgiven me? Have I committed it? And lots of worry and stress over that. Well, look what, look what this said in this passage here. Jesus states that all sins can be forgiven, including whatever blasphemies they, they do, except for a specific blasphemy, which is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what's the scene here? What's happened in this passage? Jesus' enemies said his power to do these supernatural things came from where? They came from Satan. And some of you may understand this. Let me explain this to you. When Jesus came, even though he was all God and all man, he lived his life as a man, so he could perfectly fulfill the law and to reveal that uh, to, to God to be his perfect sacrifice. So when he died for our sin, he was worthy. And so Jesus made it clear throughout his ministry when he did supernatural things that he was doing those supernatural things by the power of 
the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so when Jesus did miracles and supernaturals, he, things, he gave the credit to the Holy Spirit. So I don't believe that there's any particular words that are the issue here. Maybe you think in your past you've said a certain thing and that now you're going to be condemned forever from the unpardonable sin. Well, I, I don't think Jesus means it, uh, this to be described as what they said in itself was so horrible that God gets especially angry and that he doesn't ever forgive that. I think what Jesus is getting at here is once you get to the point of cynicism where you say the work of Jesus is the work of the devil, there's no going back there. There's such a settled hardness of heart against Jesus that no matter what happens, your heart will never be, ever be moved to repentance. So you get the point there? They were so, so calloused and hardened that they could see God do these supernatural, amazing things through Jesus. And they said, there's no way that could be of God. The devil is the one who did that. So they took the work of the Holy Spirit and they said it was of Satan. So rather than a heart that runs after God and sees God in the person of Jesus, they ran from Jesus. They turned from Jesus and blamed it on Satan. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like a doctor who's offering to perform a life-saving surgery for you, but you're convinced that doctor is a sadistic murderer, and so you will never allow him to do the surgery even though he's the only one who can do it. That's kind of the attitude here. This, that, that's the unpardonable sin here, that they were convinced that Jesus, who was the only one who could provide them the forgiveness they needed, that he was something of the devil. And so if you reject the means of forgiveness, there's no forgiveness. If you reject the means of forgiveness, there's no forgiveness available. So no matter what's said about Jesus, no matter what evidence is presented about Jesus, the heart is so hard that when they see a good and loving Savior, they see something totally different. They don't see that. The good thing is, if you're here today, and you're questioning your mind, have I committed the unpardonable sin, and you're wrestling with that right now, I can assure you the fact that you're wrestling with that, you probably haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Because God's Spirit is speaking and working in your heart. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, man, I, I hate that I'm here. Why did I get drugged to church? This stuff is stupid. It's silly. It's ignorant. It's, it's so ancient. I can't wait to get out of here then maybe you're borderlining on this issue. In fact, I would say that chances are that if you don't respond to Jesus today, there be that you never, ever get a chance to respond to Jesus. And I'm not saying that fear tactics are scary. I'm just saying if the Holy Spirit tugs your heart, that's the day of salvation. That's the day to look to Jesus, to look to the cross and say, I believe, I believe. Because you may not get that chance again. So what will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus today? Let me just give you an illustration to kind of make the point here a little clearer. Let's say today I literally tell you that I have the ability to go outside and jump over the moon and back down to earth. I, 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 I just, I didn't set this up. I didn't say it. I just said, hey guys, I just want to let you know I have some supernatural powers, okay? I just, 
To tell you that, I know you've heard some stuff from preachers, but mine's way better than that, okay? I can jump the moon. I can, I can jump the moon. What, what are you going to think in your mind? You're going to think, Pastor John, he's lost it. I mean, woo, I mean he's crazy. He's a, he's, a, he's a lunatic, all right? He is a lunatic. Let's just put that up here. He's a lunatic to think he can do that. He's just lost touch with reality. All right, my family would be like, we're doing that intervention thing, all right? We're going to go grab him, seize him before he makes a bigger fool of himself than he already has. So just a lunatic. Others will sit here and think, if I make that claim, they're thinking, okay, he's saying that. We know he doesn't believe that. He's a liar. He's just a liar. He's lying to us about it. We know he can't do that. So some people would say, he's a lunatic. Some people would say, I'm a liar. The thing is, everything that I've said today, if I literally said that in a way that I wanted to convince you that it was true, everything that I said today and everything I am about, you would discredit because you would say, Pastor John is out of touch with reality. He, he's just not believable. He's, he's just, you can't trust him. You see, that's the situation that the first century Jews find themselves in, and also those who discard Jesus today find themselves in. You have to decide, if you think Jesus is false, if you think his claims were false, then you have to either say, he was a lunatic, he was out of his mind, like the family, let's go make an intervention here, and let's get him off the streets before he really, really does damage himself and gets the religious leaders to kill him. But here's the pretty amazing thing about this, all right? The very family members, the brothers, who went to seize Jesus and take him because they thought he was a fool, he was out of touch with the reality, the very same ones, James and Judas, after the resurrection, they believed. They believed in Jesus. When they saw that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead after he was put to death, they believed. And not only did they believe and say, oh yeah, we, we affirm that, they became leaders in the church, they each wrote a book of the Bible, and they were ultimately martyred, killed for their faith in their brother. It's pretty awesome, right? All right? To believe that your brother was who he said he was, God in the flesh, when you grew up with him, you played ball with him, you hammered a nail and did stuff and carpenter-wise around the house with him, you cleaned the house with him, you did all these things, just normal, mundane things of life, and and then he claims to be God, and you're like, oh, no, I mean, he's good, but he's not God for sure. And then all of a sudden, he is killed, and you said, I saw it was coming. All right, it, it, you know, you just can't talk like that and without repercussions, without things happening. But then, on the third day that we celebrate today, Jesus came back to life. And not only did he come up to life, and then he went to heaven, nobody saw him. His brothers saw him. They attested to it. They witnessed him being alive. And not just them. The disciples, 500 other people, many multitudes, saw Jesus alive. So his brothers, who said that he was a lunatic, they believed. If you discount Jesus, as you see on the screen, you can also fall in this category of he's a liar. He was saying things he knew weren't true. He knew that these things weren't true. He was just making these things up. Was Jesus a liar? But maybe today you do say, Jesus, 
sorry. Um, you say Jesus is Lord. That he is, oh, I was holding up the wrong song. Here's Lord. Um, you say he's Lord. You say his claims are true. He is the Lord. Then you have a cho- choice today. Do you accept him for who he said he was? Or do you reject him? You see, you have to do something with Jesus. You have to make a decision about Jesus. He leaves us no other choice. He proved he was Lord by what he said and what he did. Raising from the dead. Proving all his claims were true. And so, today, here's here's my ask of you. If you claim to believe in Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, if you say, I believe Jesus is true, I encourage you to dive into his word, dive into church community with other believers, and to continue to grow in your faith. Because if you're isolated, if you're left out there trying to do this by yourself, you're going to struggle big time. Because faith is hard. There was a man in the Bible who came to Jesus for healing of his, his daughter, and Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, I believe, help my unbelief. He said, yes, I believe, but you know, I'm still struggling here. And he prays to Jesus, help my unbelief. And maybe that's where you're at today. You're like, I, I, I believe. I'm here. You know, I, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But I'm struggling with living this out. I'm struggling with embracing it. I want to encourage you to just throw it all before God. Give it all to Jesus. Trust him with your life. Humble yourself before him. Know that he is more than capable of not only getting you to heaven, but he can get you to live the life that he's called you to live with the joy that he's promised to give you no matter what happens. This is not a bill of goods to sell you. I had a guy trying to sell me uh, a product over the last couple of weeks, and it's one of those multi-level marketing things, and it's probably a good product. I mean, truthfully, I'm not downing his product or him, but... Uh, the truth is, sometimes you see these things who make, the, they make these incredible claims like, oh, my son had autism, he drank this bottle of stuff, and now he's well, you know. Uh, come on, you know, that stuff isn't true, all right? It's not true. And so maybe you've heard people up here in the front of a church before saying, just come to Jesus and all your problems go away. No, actually, it's just the opposite. Come to Jesus and things will tighten around you. You'll see who your true friends are, and you'll see those who say, fanatic, all right, not what we're about here, okay? We don't, you don't party anymore? Come on. You're not part of this group anymore? You don't do this anymore? No fun. See ya. All right? Because Jesus demands that we take up our cross and follow him. Am I going to live like Jesus lived? Am I going to walk like Jesus walked? Not perfectly, but we have the Holy Spirit. If you're truly in Christ, the same spirit who gave Jesus the power to live his life and the same power that, ro- that he rose from the dead through the whole power of the Holy Spirit, that same power lives in us and gives us the strength to live for him. And no matter what you face, no matter how tough your relationships are, no matter how difficult your situation is, God promised that if you cast your cares upon him, he cares for you, he will sustain you, his presence will be there with you. And you know what? He's given you a body of Christ, the church, a community of believers who come, as Brennan said in the the video, and rally around you and encourage you. You have to make it known. Some people, they just hurt in silence. Things happen, and they're like, I just got to deal with this. You know, I don't want to tell anybody. I don't, you know, just keep it private. 
Hello, that's what your church body is here for. So you can hurt out loud. You can struggle out loud. And people can come around you and encourage you. I just add this in for a second. This, this wasn't in my notes. But most Sunday mornings, honestly, I am so pumped up to preach by the time I get here that, I mean, I can't hardly hold it back. All right, Mitch and I both get here around 5 a.m. in the morning. We love just to spend time in prayer, just get our minds clear. I go over my sermon, do those last kind of things. I'm just, I just pumped up to preach. Well, today, for some reason, I just, I just was feeling really kind of like down. And I, and I can't explain it. I just had, you ever had one of those days where you just had this low hum depression that's kind of lingering over you and you're like not sure why? There's nothing bad going on in your life. Nothing bad is happening. I just, I just felt like that, you know, the, the, the power, the strength wasn't there that normally is there. You know what I did? I sent text to three guys who love me and will pray for me. And they're, they're prayer warriors who are always sending me stuff and asking me to pray for, for uh, how they can pray. And I'm in community with them. I said, pray for me. Here's, here's the deal. Plus, on top of that, our Wi-Fi is down this morning, and so we can't do the live stream. Mitch's voice is barely there, and he can't hardly sing. I, get, I, said, I said, pray. Something's happening here. It's oppression. And, and, and look, I'm, this is not one of those miracle claims, drink this, and all the problems go away. But the truth is, by the time probably these guys had finished praying for me, my attitude, my whole demeanor had just changed. I, I just felt different. I was ready, man. I was psyched. I was ready to get in the Word and give you the Word today. God uses prayer. God uses the body of Christ. The miracle I referred to earlier was a lady who couldn't be here today. Her and her husband are at uh, uh, the church that her, her son-in-law is the preacher at. But they're part of this church, and we prayed over her because she was facing just a life sentence, a, a, just a critical diagnosis that could have been just pretty much the end of her life as you know it. Yet God supernaturally intervened. She went to the neurologist, and the neurologist said, no, it's not that. It's not that. Something lesser. How, how great is that? But she came in and she said, I want to humble myself before the elders of this church, the body of Christ. I'm just going to sit here and I want you to just lay hands and pray over me. And she just humbled herself and received encouragement from this church. That's what church is about. That's what the body of Christ is about. So today, if you're a believer, get to know Jesus through his word. Be connected to the body of Christ. Not just loosely, but deeply connected to those who care and love you. And then if you're here today and you're not a believer, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, truthfully, look at that thing, you know, I just, you know, I, I just don't believe, I don't buy it. Well, one, God's big enough for you to, to dive in and dig out and look and look in his word, study it out, and see that the claims of Jesus and the historical record are compelling. But that's not enough because there's many a smart people, way smarter than me, who look at the historical record, they look at the word, and they walk away and don't believe. There's a supernatural spiritual element to this that draws you. And if you are in that place today, where you know you don't believe, but something's happening in your heart, that you just feel this tug, this, this conviction, this, this weight, and you're thinking, where is this coming from? I've, I've sat through many of Easter services, and I've never felt this before. 
That's the Spirit speaking to you. Don't say, ah, that's not God. That's just, you know, something I had for breakfast this morning. Or that's just, you know, guilt trip that he's putting me on. Don't contribute the work of the Holy Spirit to something else. Because you may walk out of here and never have another chance. Respond to God. Romans 10, 9 says, If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believe in our heart, that means that I just give it all to Jesus. Believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. I will be saved. You will be saved. That's what God tells us. Is that where you're at today? 